Hello world, I'm Gerard Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum Autumn 2021 series, brought to you as always by the National Union of Journalists with support from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. This webinar is on the topic of the future of media and freelance journalism after COVID, with NUJ General Secretary Michelle Stanistreet, Deputy Editor of the Chewham Herald, Siobhan Holliman, Irish Times Media Correspondent, Morris Slattery, and freelance journalist, Claire Grady. Claire. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Good to be here this afternoon. Um, I will start, I think, by going around our speakers with Siobhan and Laura, and we'll start by assessing what changes have come about um, because of the the pandemic, what are the and probably mostly adverse impacts of the pandemic on the media and freelance in in freelancing in particular. So and then we kind of maybe we'll go forward to see Hi Claire, you cut out on me there, but I think you're coming to me first. Uh, I think the question was, um, what was the, um, I suppose, the major um, impact of what we've seen over the past year? And uh, where I sort of sum it up, uh, how, where we stand now. And obviously it was a kind of a very extreme experience um, for the media last year for the Irish media in the second quarter uh, as it was with other industries and I think you know a lot of organizations did kind of have an existential crisis in a sense that they didn't know if they couldn't sell their their newspapers in news agents for example um, (laughs) if they were still going to be alive in in print and of course you know radio stations and television uh, broadcasters had to work out how to do their entire business um, safely at a time when the advertising market was completely collapsing. Um, I just have some figures here from the uh, marketing group uh, core, and they put the second quarter collapse in advertising revenues at 48%. Now, obviously, that's not the only source of income for a lot of um, journalism outlets. You know, for example, the national titles also have um, strong now um, subscription income and that actually did well in that period because news was so heavily consumed at that time um, but it, it obviously was an incredibly serious um, moment and the first reaction at, at that time I think was to absolutely slash costs and as we've seen from previous downturns it's it's your uh, it's your non-staff uh, costs that sort of start first in terms of, of um, uh, freelance casual uh, labor and 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 that's one of the the, the the first targets now senior staff members did take uh, temporary pay cuts too but we certainly saw a loss of freelance income um a loss of slots i mean the, the pagination reduced um i think broadcasters were having a very difficult time um even just in, in terms of um for example if you're if your work is more in the sort of program making line it just there were no programs being made at that time apart from uh, COVID related ones so it was a huge um it was a huge kind of moment of an uncertainty that I think you know to be fair even by the autumn it was starting to recover and people realized that you know the worst fears weren't going to come true and at the end of the day we had a sort of a 15 percent 14 15 percent decline in the ad market last year but within that as I say you know national titles would have been down maybe uh, but well, when the Irish Times, for example, would have been down twenty percent on on ad revenues, and our turnover would have been down eight um, percent. Those are figures that we've reported recently. But the thing that saved um, 
groups like ours it, it was that cost cutting was actually you know was was um, was was much sharper than the decline in turnover so none of that actually is good news obviously for journalists and freelance journalists in particular who are dependent on budgets being uh, flowing a uh, lot more freely also, I don't think um, the, the, some of the opportunities and some of the uh, slots that were lost, all of them returned. I don't think they did. And um, even though, you know, broadcasters, again, you know, they were helped by um, government intervention in terms of buying ads and also to the radio stations received um, to, you know, uh, access to contestable funds that they hadn't previously had access to in the same way through the Broadcasting Authority. Um, but I still don't think, I, th- I think we're in the situation now where, uh, I don't think we can be reasonably confident that there hasn't been lasting damage from this. And of course, this is within an industry where there are elements of it are, are, are in decline anyway. So they're all trying to manage that. And uh, as I said, I think I said to you uh, earlier, I'm not totally renowned for my optimism, but um, so I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I can't really sort of uh, end on an upbeat note, apart from, of course, that we are expecting some uh, new legislation and maybe that might help. Uh, around uh, in certain, certain areas yeah oh yeah grim and um, Siobhan is that your experience as being you know working in a regional paper but also having experience of of course on the commission on the future of media how does it affect the tomb heralds uh, yeah I, I I I think one of the most dark memories I have and it was one of the most unnerving and I think what we've, t- what we've forgotten about, I suppose, and we take for granted is that, you know, journalists throughout this have kept going. You know, there hasn't been a stop and we have absorbed an awful lot. Um, I suppose we've taken financial hits, but we've also absorbed a lot mentally and emotionally over the last 18 months um, because, you know, our own industry has been in crisis and then we are dealing with the pandemic within that as well. So what I remember from the most unnerving part was I think it was around the St. Patrick's Day when everything started closing that the, the parades were being cancelled and from a local newspaper point of view and from a freelance point of view is one of our big things is St. Patrick's Day parades I mean we do like a supplement we cover every local parish parade town village that we can because it's all people-centered it's all community focused and it's a wonderful celebration so we had you know different photographers you know booked to take different parades we had our own team organized and all of a sudden that just literally disappeared that went that 12 18 pages wasn't going to happen and you know as each item of business each um aspect of life shut down that impacted on a local paper and local radio as well and not just the tomb herald but across the country because local notes, communities, you know, everything was cancelled. There were no events. We used to have loads, we're all about people and celebrating people and there were no, nothing was happening. There were no people in the paper anymore because they weren't there, they weren't out and about. Um, And also I think one of the biggest ones to hit straight away were sports freelance journalists because we would have a lot of freelancers using um, sport throughout the weekend and all sport was cancelled. Not alone did that cause huge problems for trying to put out local sports in the paper um, when there was no sport happening. Um, and I have to say congratulations to all the sports journalists throughout the, the country for um, being innovative and coming up with such great, great coverage and um, archive material. And, you know, they really were um, innovative over that lockdown, um, I suppose, the local and regional uh, broadcasters and press. You know, they couldn't take the national view on things all the time so we really had to dig deep 
and get out as much as we can. And I suppose it was with gratitude that we were allowed to do our jobs. And I think, you know, we had our press cards and we were allowed to um, work as journalists, as as um, as frontline workers, I suppose, in, in one sense. And but also then from the revenue point of view, I mean, we'd have normal pages of entertainment ads, of pub ads, of those type of things. And they literally melted off the page like the Matrix. It was very disconcerting, I have to say. I did have, you know, one of my panic attacks on that day because I was going, what is happening? You know, I'm so used to like laying out a paper and things are going ahead. And I'm going page after page after page was literally disappearing. And what are we going to do? And that then, you know, with the falling sales. So I think there was a lot of panic and um, stress levels among many journalists at that time, I have to say, because I think we really feared the worst um, that we were going to close, that a lot of local newspapers would have no option but to close because sales were down, advertising revenue was down. You know, local newspapers are not well set up for online subscriptions at the moment. And you know, if, if one positive has to come, I think that's, you know, it has really highlighted the need for the local newspapers to get going and get their subscriptions online and provide a proper, um, easy, accessible digital offering to readers at home and abroad. And I think that is one thing that has come from out that. But, you know, we have started using freelancers again, especially sports. Once that opens up, I think sports and from a local newspaper and local radio point of view, they were the first ones to get back into it. Um, and thankfully, they have been busy, I suppose, in the last few months. Like, to what extent were sales affected, um, Siobhan? I'm just, you know, like, I'm just kind of thinking of regional newspapers when, when the, you know, you have no incentive. You're not looking for match coverage. You're not looking for your kids' picture being in because of the parade and stuff like that. So can you give us a sort of ballpark of by what extent sales would have fallen say during the summer or yeah. whatever I suppose you know summer sales are always down anyway because people are busy but they weren't busy this time but I think there was an initial drop you know because people just literally locked themselves inside you know they weren't going out to the newspapers and stuff but then I I think from our sales didn't take a, a drastic hit um from from what I know I have to say I'm not privy to the exact sale figures and stuff but um, they didn't take a, a massive drop. They have dropped back. Um, I think there was, people still wanted to connect and find something, you know, and I suppose what we did do from, and and, and you will see what have happened in local newspapers throughout the country, um, is that, you know, we do what we do best. We go and tell people's stories, you know, so how is this impacting on people? Um, we got in touch with people from abroad and people loved hearing that, you know, um, people from areas that used to um, live in our areas and were experienced COVID in Italy, in New York, in Spain, in different places like that. And that went, was received very well. And I suppose, you know, if there is that strong connection with the local paper, thankfully, people did keep it up um, and were looking for it. But um, definitely creativity was um, very much required um but you know if you look back over the past year of different papers it's amazing the stories were told and some of some people said to us you know we actually some of the articles that were in were, were among the best because you got back to basics um and um really got into telling people's stories you know fantastic well, that's that's a good thing michelle from an overall point of view i mean like i i know you know in britain things were probably 
you know, obviously they're different. You you have a kind of a helicopter view of all this. How how does it impact freelancers there? Yeah, I think it's it's undeniable that the pandemic had a pretty brutal and very quick immediate impact on freelancers. They're often at that first kind of um, line of defence in terms of when cuts come, you know, they're the first victims of that. And that's absolutely the experience that we saw. And at that period of time, at the, you know, as employers started to react to the beginning of that first lockdown period when the pandemic hit, the demand on the union, on the NUJ in Ireland and in the UK was enormous as individuals, freelancers especially, but many of our chapel members as well coming to us for help and, and advice. And we saw freelancers having their commissions cancelled. We saw casual shifts in newspapers and magazines, swiftly kind of jettisoned by employers, even some that had people booked in for months, longer term bookings that were kind of for later on in the year. Many of our members were saying they were just, you know, summarily kind of cancelled without much of a thought and without any meaningful notice either. So as Siobhan said, certain sectors particularly were so badly hit, sports, arts, travel, you know, all areas where the work just immediately dried up. And in the UK, one of the things that we were involved in um, very heavily alongside other sister unions in the movement was about trying to negotiate a kind of an aid package from the UK government. And I think the trade union movement played a really important role in securing that. But the the first iteration was only aimed at employees. Um, It took quite a lot of pushing and an awful lot of kind of collective effort to get to the stage where we were able to um, see the the launch of the self-employed income support scheme. And when that was established here in the UK, it actually left millions of workers out in the cold. And that was that was just about their eligibility and their employment status, you know, how long they work, whether they were someone who just recently moved into freelancing from a staff job. There was lots of different people who found themselves completely cast adrift, actually. Um, I, I think at that time, what was we found, you know, a lot of our officials found really shocking was that in workplaces where freelancers and casual workers are kind of form part of the extended family, you know, they're a very important element of those newsrooms. You know, they were just kind of dispatched without much care and consideration. People felt the, the, the human impact of that, the kind of professional impact of being treated so shabbily at a time of unprecedented global crisis as, as really wounded individuals and I think it's important to kind of note that the 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 individual and the human human impact of the pandemic and you know your work has been incredible we've seen many of our members plunged into financial crisis we've done a lot of surveys through this period of time to kind of check in with members about how they're doing both personally and kind of professionally and those surveys reveal really alarming kind of incidents of health issues and mental health problems particularly and actually a worrying number of journalists who decided to quit the industry altogether because they simply couldn't make ends meet. We've got another one of those all member surveys going out actually this month and it's going to be interesting to kind of have that benchmark to see you know how much work has returned, is it to the same levels as before or have people had to kind of diversify their kind of freelancing portfolio really quite considerably. And I think probably in all the employers that we're still dealing with now, I mean, nothing's returned to a pre-pandemic normality. I think we see employers still operate in a very ultra-cautious approach about any expenditure, even in places where actually 
um, income has returned back to kind of decent levels or, or very good levels with some organisations because some were winners out of the, the whole pandemic period. But there's still a, a nervousness, I think, about committing spend. So I think quite a lot of freelancers are still suffering the impact of that. You know, that work hasn't resumed in that way. And, and, and it's, I'm sure it's the same in the Republic, but we also had, you know, there's a lot of employers who adopt a kind of never waste a crisis mentality. And some of the cuts that are made are kind of more cynical and opportunistic, you know, a chance to kind of have a restructure or to kind of make decisions that would have been harder to get away with, you know, without that kind of cloak of a, a crisis at the backdrop. So I think, I think it's been a very challenging period for, for, for lots of people, for journalists particularly, but, but I'm absolutely certain that freelancers have, you know, suffered particularly through that process. And that's why the NEJ has kind of tried to gear quite a lot of our campaigning and lobbying activity around that need. And that's why we launched our freelance charter all through last year. We ran a kind of fair deal for freelancers campaign because I think the very act of there being a a global crisis and finding out as workers that suddenly you know you're not you don't know but your government doesn't care as much about you simply because of your employment status that's propelled quite a lot of people into activism into into the need to kind of work collectively to try and improve rights for freelancers to improve terms and conditions to be able to have collective bargaining like anyone else so the optimist in me sees that as a positive thing, you know, something that actually we can galvanise that spirit. And I think we have seen quite a lot more younger younger people, you know, who increasingly freelance for, you know, part of the outset of their career rather than later on. I think we've seen quite a lot of journalists and activists and NEJ members become engaged in that campaigning. And that's a really positive thing to, to focus on. Was that campaign, was that sort of the, the, you know, the, the charge or the freelance charge, was that a rise out of the pandemic or was it something that was bubbling anyhow? Was it a response to the, the way people were treated? I think in many respects, it's the same for our news recovery plan that we launched. There's elements of it that have been kind of part of our core campaigning and our values for a long time but actually mm. this this experience crystallized a lot of that together and there were new challenges that kind of laid bare you know issues of things that we want to to see improved so the point of the charter was I mean in in, in in essence these are fairly basic um asks in many respects you know it's about being able to have the right to organize in a trade union the right to have a written contract with fair terms and conditions and speedy payment and equal treatment at work in terms of health and safety holiday pay parental pay you know access to a retirement pension and one of the things particularly actually that rankled considerably with many members who found themselves not able to access either of the government um, support schemes in the UK was that they'd been forced to work in a, a particular way by employers. For example, those individual journalists who'd had to set up um, separate companies, you know, personal service companies to operate their freelancing business through. That had been a requirement by some of the employers they engage with. And actually that that in turn, you know, made them, you know, not, not be able to access support in that way. So it's about having a kind of level playing field in terms of rights and, and protections at work. So a bit of both, I think it's been, it's, it's, it's enabled us to kind of draw together a lot of that existing work um, but you know, very much through the prism of what this pandemic has, has opened up and opened people's eyes up to in, in terms of how 
their life operates, how their working life operates and what better support and protection they need. Is there any, like it's a year now since that charter was launched. I mean, is it is it taking? Is it, is, it, is it getting any traction or can you see any you know, positive response? Yeah, in terms of us being able to raise awareness about the issues, absolutely. I think it's enabled us to engage with other groups who've also been doing quite a lot of important campaigning in that in that space. Not just trade unions, but groups like Excluded UK. You know, there was millions of workers in the UK who were um, left out of the kind of government support package. So I think it's drawn a lot of people into the orbit of trade unions and kind of seeing the need to organise, which is a positive it's the subject of many kind of um, NUJ organised meetings and events kind of around the union in branches and in, in workplace chapels. I think it's also, there's some very good examples where actually this, is, this experience has drawn together um, NUJ members in, in workplaces where they do have chapels, where they often might have recognition, but it's helped them boost relationships and engagement with their you know, freelance colleagues who, you know, might not necessarily be sat in the newsrooms with them, but they've had a lot more virtual engagement with them this year. And actually that's been good because it's helped to put some of these freelance issues on the collective industrial workplace agenda as well. So these are all kind of positive things that I think we can draw on. Mm -hmm. Just on on the, and this is for both Siobhan and Laura, the whole business of you know, I mean, like a lot of freelance work was just jettisoned straight away um, when the when the pandemic, the lockdown struck. I mean, I'm just thinking about remote working um, and the fact that some form of remote working it looks like it's here to stay. Does that adversely affect? or disproportionately affect freelancers. I mean, okay, a lot of freelancers aren't going into newsrooms or weren't going into newsrooms, but then again, a lot of them were. And then if, if they're out of the newsrooms, if everybody's out of the newsroom, is this kind of, is this a net loss then for freelancers? I mean, Laura, do you have anything, I think you were making a point about that to me before. Yeah, no, I think um, remote working culture, especially if it's, if it's the dominant culture, I think that probably on balance does adversely affect everybody who's sort of at the outset of their career. But um, at the same time, I'm not sure how much of that is perceived and real because, um, you know, within within uh, journalism uh, workplaces over, the, I'd say, the last two decades, um, there's generally been a dearth of uh, promotional opportunities. So the whole idea of sort of, mm. um, you know, seizing opportunities by being there and knowing your contacts, um, or, or rather your contacts being editors, commissioning editors, it, um, the sort of benefit of that is, is maybe not as much as people might think, but but definitely, you know, obviously you learn by osmosis, you learn what they're looking for. So if you are freelance, um, you can you can take those opportunities. But um, of course, it's been a long time, I think, since, uh, you know, certainly in, in my company, since freelancers were able to just walk in the door and, 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 and sit there. Um, sort of, you know, just on the casual invitation of, say, one editor, which is actually did what happened at the start of my career, which is 20 years ago. But sooner after that, you know, you're talking about security passes, you're talking about companies keeping a, a tight control on costs and a very kind of, um, you know, sharp division between staff and freelancers who, who could quite understandably feel on the periphery of things. So you could say if we move towards a more of a working from home culture, 
and I think we are and we have um that that disadvantage to freelancers isn't isn't quite as extreme because they, they you know they're probably communicating with editors to pretty much the same extent to a staff person is um I don't think media companies are especially renowned for their internal communications uh policy so um uh, or you know the volume of them so um if you know if you know what somebody's looking for and you you, you know the sort of trial and error with that you can build a career a freelance and sustain a career still what I, my feeling is my perception is that the people who are doing that are in fact people who were previously staff journalists either for where they're uh, freelancing for now or for another organization and they already have quite a lot of experience and a name for themselves um so i'm not sure you know if it's e at all um possible or easy for somebody completely starting out to just sort of um kind of coldly submit um <laughs> pitches um and if they you know get a reply you're probably doing quite well um so i i think it's a bit of a, a mix a mixed situation and probably the ultimate um determining factor is the sort of the costs one and the fact that companies are looking on these things as a hawk like a hawk and they are you know if they even if they think something is a brilliant idea they, they you know they may well just think i can't afford to pay a freelance fee so you know staff person might end up doing it at the end of their day yeah um siobhan when we were talking last week um this isn't necessarily related to the pandemic but um you know, and it is a difficulty, especially with regional newspapers and you know, kind of local radio. But we were talking about the difficulty of getting cover. Like everything has been run on. You know, it, it's so the number of staffers employed is so small now that if somebody goes on holidays, they have to be replaced. You know what I mean? Because you you can't divide up the work. Are there opportunities there? Do you think? Um, you know, on a positive note for freelance or how do you think that might work? I think there are, Claire, to be honest. Um, and I have to say, I don't know when I was contacted by a freelance journalist last. Um, so what I would say, especially at local level, uh, now it is challenging because, you know, it's not like you're going to have, um, if you're covering for people or, you know, just dropping in here and there, you're not going to have reliable work. And so it's not an attractive thing for freelance to get into I suppose and but from from our point of view we do have difficulties getting cover you know obviously people go on sick leave they um, take holidays um, things can come up something can't get covered like especially regarding marking so if there's a familiarity among people at local level for courts local authority meetings councils um, we would have a regular supply of sports freelancers it doesn't seem to impact the sports as much because a lot of them um you know aren't full-time freelancers they're you know they're, they're covering a game you know maybe once every month or something for doing different while they're doing different things and then you build up a bank of your your reliable um sports freelancers and, and they cover certain matches for you but from the newsroom point of view and from you know lifestyle and features point of view I would, you know, very much love someone coming and pitching some features to me because sometimes what happens in the newsroom, well, we do have a feature section, but because we are so um, tightly, you know, the, the newsroom is tight with numbers and it's very busy now. We're all doing many jobs that we never did before when we originally started. Um, that would be great to get a good pitch of a feature, you know, but we're not. So what I would say is um, 
I think it's time for people to reconnect with newsrooms, perhaps, you know, to say, hey, I am here. Uh, this is what I do. Would you be interested? What are you looking for? How can I kind of maybe tailor something for you? And also for freelancers to look at local radio, to look at local newspapers, perhaps, and say, what aren't they doing that I could do for them? You know, you have to be, you know, freelancing, and I've never done it. Um, so, you know, forgive me if I sound um, a bit arrogant or something, but yeah, you have to go looking for what we're not doing as well. I think there's an opportunity there for people to give stuff at local newsroom uh, level, some digital material, some audio material. Um, you know, if you, but I find here, you know, if, if you do something and, you know, we find, oh, that's great. They're, they're doing that now. We don't have to do it. You easily get kept on. You know what I mean? That it becomes a habit and you know so-and-so is going to do that for you and you're reliable. So if you do a good job the first time, it's very likely that they'll keep going to you because it's, um, it's tried and trusted. So I would definitely recommend for freelancers to reconnect with the newsrooms, to ask and they have a chat with somebody, you know, um, um, from courts, again, all those markings and, and from features as well to get in touch and see. Now, maybe they aren't there because, but I think maybe from a remote, we would never really have that many freelancers coming into the newsroom because they would be covering events for us, you know, and then they'd send in a copy. Um, but and they're not completely connected, but what we have noticed as well, and um, from a student placement point of view, which is sometimes, you know, the first thing, you know, a graduate does is try and freelance. But we've had student placements and unfortunately they've never stepped in, in, in into a newsroom. So they've gone through the last two years, we've had maybe three placements and neither, none of the students have had the opportunity to actually be part of a working newsroom. They've been part of a working virtual newsroom. Um, and I know some newsrooms actually decided not to take on student placements because they said, oh, well, they're not going to be in a newsroom. And I said, well, we will take you on because this is what we do. So you need to learn what you're actually doing. We're all doing this at the moment. So this could be what we're doing for a long time, um, whether you're in a newsroom or you're in your remote office or in a hub or somewhere, you know, the days of us all kind of lining up and, you know, coming into the newsroom and saying good morning to each other all at, you know, nine o'clock. I, I can't see those days returning, to be honest. Um, even though locally, you know, we wouldn't have a big commute, we wouldn't all live too far away. But even at that stage, you know, that, that's not happening. So I think there are opportunities, but they need to be explored. And from if, if we're to take a positive, Claire, and I think, you know, we, we'll try and take a positive. Um, it's not easy because we do find ourselves, you know, kind of being down and downbeat and, you know, the industry is about to collapse. But, you know, we do we do keep going. Um, so I think if the positive is to to rethink what you do or reconnect. And um, unfortunately, you know, there haven't been many much support, I suppose, for freelancers from 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 the government's point of view. You know, if there had been some skills they could have upgraded throughout the pandemic, that would have been very helpful. Um, but that was forthcoming, unfortunately. But um, yeah, so I suppose reach out a bit and see. Right. Okay, that, that sort of brings me on to I think the, the area we need to talk about is, is sort of a, a, the global media landscape, you know what I mean? And like both um, Michelle and Siobhan have been involved in commissions, committees, in kind of, you know, governments examining the role of the media. Is there something, would you talk to us a little bit about that, Michelle, from your perspective? Because you, 
you know what I mean, made submissions to the House of Lords and what, what the thinking there, because there, there is, I mean, look, at this huge amount of doom and gloom, but there's also a recognition in the face of disinformation, misinformation, you know what I mean, the kind of the toxicity of a lot of social media and stuff like that, that, that there is a recognised need for um, a respected um, you know, source of good information. So please tell me there's something positive kind of coming down the tracks. Absolutely. I mean, I think when the pandemic hit, it's probably fair to say it probably hit the industry at one of its weakest points ever. So at a time of greatest need from from us as members of the public, from citizens in terms of our right to know and having access to that kind of information that is impartial, that's trustworthy, um, that's grounded in fact, you know, never before has that been more important, really, you know, in in. In, in modern times, it's a, a you know a once in a generational kind of issue. So I think it demonstrated just how important journalism is um, and the role that journalists play in in our society. So you're right, you point to disinformation, um, fake news. I, I think we, we can see what kind of damage that let, having a kind of free for all environment. Um, and an attitude towards that, the damage that that can wreak is, you know, is, is brought into sharp relief when we're talking about a public health crisis in, in, in terms of the COVID-19 um, situation that we faced. So it's not just any other business. It's, it can't be left to the vagaries of the market to, you know, succeed or to fail. And I think that's very much been the, the spirit and the message from the NUJ. And we were pretty quick out of the traps. We launched the NUJ's news recovery plan in April. So very soon after the outset of that pandemic, because it was obvious, you know, the, the challenges that this sector was going to be under, you know, be facing and the, the challenges that lay ahead. And, you know, it was clear that that was frightening, you know, considerable chunk of the industry whose very business model, you know, they could see was was kind of, you know, um, ebbing away in the first weeks of those lockdowns. So we were able to put that plan in place. And, and I think one of the strengths of it um, is that it's not just calling for the propping up of the status quo. It's actually campaigning and lobbying for a reinvigorated news industry, one that's much more firmly rooted in the public good. So we were able to kind of lay out a very positive vision of what our vital sector could be like with the appropriate support and with appropriate measures. And it's it's very practical, a whole series of short-term and medium-term measures that would act as a, a genuine stimulus to the to the sector that we all care so much about. So, and one of the the beauties of putting that out there at that moment in time is that it went on to then spark those conversations and discussions and planning that took place you know, in the Republic. And we've seen the the, the um, submission that the NUJ um, put in for the future of the Media Commission in Ireland, in Scotland, in Wales. You know, we've seen tailored plans in Northern Ireland as well that have then stemmed from that, but with a lot of the kind of core messaging from that original plan that we put together. It's It's been a brilliant toolkit and something that it's been heartening and kind of inspiring to see so many of our activists rally around it and to they've been leading the lobbying and the engagement with governments on this issue since then so that's very much a work in progress it's also 
because one of the things that you know we were saying needed to happen is that you know the the tech giants that had had it their way on their terms for long enough that there needs to be a new approach to you know their role um, in the industry and the financial detrimental impact that they've had on the broader industry that you know it's time for them to pay their way and that that before the pandemic if I was sat in meetings with government ministers talking about the need for robust action in that regard that they just wouldn't have wanted to hear it they wouldn't have been receptive to that kind of thing at all they in fact they would I've had these conversations where they would think that's fanciful you know that's the stuff of dreams and actually what we saw over the past 18 months is a real shift in that mentality and I think both both in terms of from you know key industry players but also from the heart of governments and so I think that that's that's incremental progress that's incredibly important and some elements of the plan are things that we're already beginning to see yield benefits so you know the 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 raising of the awareness of the role of journalism the importance of media literacy um, programs so that you know people who are consuming their news from their phone kids teenagers young people you know know that they can know that where is that information coming from you know who has a vested interest in serving up that particular line on something to you having a very media literacy kind of savvy approach to to content and the role that it plays in our society you know these are really important things and the supporting of freelancers is central to that plan and the the freelance charter sprang out of that as well so there's the different elements to it that I think amount to you know some of the things are about you know local news that you know the absolute fundamental role that local news plays in our society and I think we saw that from local newspapers across Ireland across the UK you know one of if you know the most trusted source of news and information and over here the government embarked on quite a sizable kind of advertising campaign that they absolutely prioritised regional and local newspapers about because all the studies show is it has a genuine impact. You know, they they invest some money there and those adverts have the desired effect. You know, they've been able to to run the data off the back of it. And people know that, that, you know, or, or feel absolutely that their local papers kind of got their back. It's looking out for them. So the content that's spawned from that is important. So that in itself should be enough to kind of trigger a, a different approach because we've seen so many local newspapers go to the wall you know we've got news deserts in the UK where you know there just isn't a local newspaper anymore and and studies in the states that show when you have that kind of gap there's a democratic deficit as well people don't engage you know with voting with the democracy around them so these are important things for any democratic society and I think there is a degree to which a lot of this happening at the same time as we've got the kind of covid misinformation we've got kind of got vaccine denying we've got a lot of people feeling there's conspiracies going on and a lot of attacks against the mainstream media that we're feeling very keenly in the uk you know with a lot of kind of hostility towards journalists trying to go about their work in in many examples there's 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 a lot there's high stakes here and it's important that the voice of journalists is central to kind of any discussion and dialogue about where the industry goes and what, what the future pathway is. And that's what the NUJ has been trying to do and all of its constituent parts in Ireland. And as I say, across our regions and nations, our members are really leading the charge in that work. I don't know whether you can say anything, Siobhan, about, um, or maybe Laura might be better 
placed uh, politically to say something about the um, you know, the Commission on the Future of Media here. Um, like we've heard what Michelle is, you know, and we, we know what the NUJ has been looking for, and we know the uh, raising awareness about the role of uh, of journalists, you know, has, is a key part and the importance of journalism. Is there anything you can say, Siobhan? I mean, obviously you would like to see the report published at this stage or made public. Well, obviously, I think when Jared invited me to take part initially, that we would we both assumed. I suppose perhaps naively that um, we would have had the report out now that I would have been able to give maybe a better insight into some of its recommendations, you know, and that it would um, be a good core part of this debate. But unfortunately, that hasn't happened. Um, I can't, you know, you know, unfortunately, I can't say much about it, but I, I can say that on a personal level, I am disappointed that it had yet to be published. Um, you know, I put in a lot of work. All the commission members put a lot of work into it. It has, it is with government, um, you know, and it is, I am frustrated and disappointed that it has yet to be um, published because that is only the first step because obviously the government can say, look, we don't agree with you whatsoever. and. You know, that's fine, but let's have that discussion and let's have the reaction and pull off the plaster. And, you know, if there's a spur of blood and everything, everyone hates it, you know, fine. And but we're not progressing by not by not getting it out there. And, you know, I can understand things that can be difficulties um, at a level which I'm not involved in. But um, from someone who, who was part of that commission and who will be who's, you know, industry and colleagues are will be impacted by the future of it I would very much welcome for it to be um, published and for a real debate to, to, to start then on its recommendations because recommendations are one thing Claire but then they have to be implemented if they're agreed and we all know very well given even the review of the defamation act in this country things in the media world do not move at a pace and you know 10 years is like a blip if we don't start going so from that point of view that's pretty much all I can say on it. Laura, you might have something more to say. What's your sense of what's going to come out of this? I mean, presumably you have some insights and what we, I mean, we, 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 we can read the submissions and stuff like that. I mean, what's the holdup? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say it's unprecedented, this holdup or completely surprising. I mean, I know there was a very strong sense that it would be published um, in, in the summer and then again <laughs> more recently, but um, yeah, there's two, there's two things. There's obviously there was the length of time that it would take to um, run through the process of the future of media, of media commission and produce a report and then the, the publication of it and then whether or not the government actually does anything as a result of its recommendations. It's completely free to ignore absolutely all of them and then just say, oh, we'll have another inquiry or another commission or another forum. Uh, next year you, you know the, the, we've been around a few blocks on 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 this one um tomorrow we do have um as i understand it um sort of the report of the eroctus into the pre-legislative i can't say that word sorry pre-legislative scrutiny of the uh, online um safety and media regulation bill um, but, I, you know, again, I, I don't know where that's actually at. And I, uh, you know, the pre-legislative scrutiny, I have to say it again, phase of that bill actually did throw up quite an awful lot of problems. I think 
um, or certainly hurdles on the online safety um, side of things. And of course, there's this drive to regulate uh, online media, which a lot of people will agree with, but there's a, that's different from the practicalities of actually implementing that as we've seen with the data privacy um, commissioner. I think, um, I mean, you know, uh, uh, people will be talking about people using a crisis. Uh, um, I think there was a shift in attitude, perhaps, as a result of the crisis last year from the government in terms of, of what they can do to um, to support uh, media. I, I alluded to it earlier that, that they gave radio stations access to um, Broadcasting Authority of Ireland funds through, through Sound and Vision. In a way they hadn't before they could you know you know radio producers individuals could access it for certain types of programming but this was a much broader um uh, pot of cash 2.5 million i think in the first round that richard bruton announced and then 2.5 million again i think from Catherine martin um in two stages and that was really uh, i think an acknowledgement of how serious the situation was um but uh, and I and of course much welcomed by you know the independent broadcasters of Ireland group that you know I've been listening to push, to push for that for a, a good decade, and um, finally they yeah they had this they had this breakthrough. But what what's that that that's encouraged now is um, you know local newspapers and other newspaper titles to say well if they can access this funds then why why isn't there a fund for, for us to access? And I, I know there is a lot of nervousness uh, amongst um, certainly individual journalists about you know accessing government support in that way but I think there probably could be quite easily a ring-fenced um, go uh, government supported um, scheme for example in in the work placements area this is something that it's paid you know paid placements are still uh, gold dust really so uh, you know I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see why not you know I don't see why that that shouldn't be in fact you could say it's it's much overdue and even a radio scheme that I know was um, launched earlier in this year, I, I think it had been in the works for, for years and years and years. And that was only, I think, 10 individuals for, for five months. But um, it, it, it was it, it, there is there has been a shift. We're still, we're still in a wait and see zone. Um, I see um, James Dooley commenting there about um, TG Cahar uh, saying they uh, want to be on a par with RTE. But I think, well, their submission is that they've um, they want the Screen Ireland uh, Broadcasting Authority Fund and their own funds to be uh, on a one to one ratio with RTE. But I don't think they're saying that they want RTE uh, funding to be cut necessarily but I mean <laughs> there's obviously a chance that could happen but um yeah so the, you know the, the the license fee question does need to be sorted out that will have a huge uh, positive knock-on effect I think for the sector as a whole <laughs> um over over the years of course um newspapers have said you know that RTE is a competitor and we we hate this sort of unfair playing field but I think if you if you look at the strength of journalism as a whole across the entire sector and of course the argument that indigenous indigenous media isn't is 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 having a few struggles of its own um that you know sorting out that license fee question and just generally increasing the pot that's available to everybody uh, and widening the access at the same time this is going to be this is going to benefit everybody but i'm a bit skeptical about whether any of it will happen so we'll see we'll see oh god that's a bit grim Jared, is there any opportunity? Does anybody want to ask questions or can I see any questions that people... Uh, no, the only statements I've seen so far are just uh, seen uh, from Seamus. So I think you've been fairly comprehensive yeah. there. I, I think one thing that has... Sorry for interrupting, Claire. I think one thing that has come up time and time again is about the value of news and the value of 
quality, reliable news. But there's a difference between, you know, how we value something and then what we have a perception of value, as in, do we value it to pay for it? And this is where it comes down to, you know, journalists like to get paid. I And this is one thing that I used to stress all the time, you know, it's it's great to share it, it's great to put it out there and, you know, to be the first of it. But, you know, unless there's some kind of income coming back on that, no one gets paid. You know, I mean, the money has to come from somewhere to generate the news, you know, and actually, you know, sourcing news and writing news and putting information out there is an expensive business. It doesn't just literally fall out of the sky all the time for, you know, some news can, can take considerable research to do. So I think, you know, from a public's point of view, we have to think about you know, how we value it and are we prepared to pay for it? And I think the last BA Reuters um, report did show that more people are willing to pay for it. You know, and unfortunately, um, you know, when it went online initially, there was a, you know, the, the, the nationals just threw it away. Basically, they opened up the floodgates and gave news away. And that um, is very hard to pull back. Um, but it has something has to go back, you know, whether it all goes back or anything. But that is, you know, the value of news and how we pay for news and what will be free, accessible news um, is all for, for future debate as well and consideration. Yeah, I, I think on a very positive note from what the three of you have been saying, Michelle and uh, Sean and Laura, that, that one of the things the pandemic has sort of uh, uh, thrown up is the importance of trusted sources of news and governments on both sides of the Irish Sea have recognised that and elsewhere. Um, so it, it, probably I would say that the um, respect for kind of, you know what I mean, kind of solid, reliable, trustworthy news has risen. But it's how then, I mean, the, the big challenge in the future is going to be how to, it's like we all value water, you know, clean water coming out of our taps. We just weren't prepared to pay for it in the way that, the government a few years ago had decided we would pay for it. So um, it, it's to get back that sort of connection between, yes, we, we, we want you know, people to ask the tough questions of Nessus and the government and stuff like that. And we want to know what's going on in a courthouse in Kerry, but how we actually fund that. So I'm guessing that we're going to have to wait to see what's coming out of the commission you're on the future of media to some extent. But what Siobhan has said there, I mean, it's very hard to put um, you know, the toothpaste back in the tube as far as kind of you know, the, 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 what, what, the, what, what the national news. And I was involved, like in the independent at the time, when there was this drive to kind of just get people online, just get kind of the readers in, just get the clicks. And it's difficult to change people's views on that if they're used to getting it. And we all see, you know, when somebody shares an article, a paid for article, um, you know, on Twitter or something like that, and there's a, a whole thread afterwards, and the people saying, we can't, we can't open this, you know, why do we have to pay for this? Why do we have to pay for this? So that's a whole piece of work that so, you know, somebody's going to have to, or we're going to have to get over. Um, but that is, I think, with all the negativity and all of the, you know, I mean, the dire consequences and the dire impacts that, um, that kind of, you know, I mean, the, the pandemic has had on the media and very, very pointedly on freelance workers. At the end of it, on a global level, there is that sort of sense that maybe we're getting a bit of recognition. Okay, we might not be seen in the same way as nurses or frontline workers, but there is that sort of thought. The important 
as Michelle made, that you know, would not have been entertained, especially by a conservative government. But you know what I mean? Even here, you know what I mean? Um, there is that understanding now, I think, amongst the you know, that particular part of our democracy that um it's really important to have um a media that that kind of is sensible educated you know informed and impartial to pass on and to share all this really valuable information and this really life-saving stuff that was going on during the pandemic. So maybe that is a positive we can take from it all. Um, if there's no other questions, I mean, or if, there, if there's any other points any of the speakers here want to make. I should probably just note one more statement from uh, Seamus uh, Dooley. Uh, just says, uh, thanks to Siobhan for her huge commitment. Uh, worth noting, the Tories were far more inclusive than the current Irish government. We had to fight for a place at the table uh, where there was no other industry rep, no edit Irish editor or journalism editor. Okay, interesting. Is everybody happy then? Yeah, we've uh, been talking for an hour. It's now two o'clock, so <laughs> I think that's uh, we'll uh, call it a day. Thanks to everyone for taking part. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Jared. This has been the Freelance Forum, brought to you by the Dublin Freelance Branch of the National Union of Journalists and made possible by network funding from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Sector Learning and Development Programme. Music by Podsummit.com is released under a Creative Commons Zero license into the public domain. This webinar covered the topic of the future of media and freelance journalism after COVID, and I would like to say thank you again to our participants, NUJ General Secretary Michelle Stanistreet, Deputy Editor of the Tube Herald, Siobhan Holliman, Irish Times Media Correspondent Artis Slattery, and freelance journalist Claire Grady. To everyone who joined us on the day, thank you for listening. Forum will return in spring 2022, we hope with some live in-person events, but also with some more podcasts and other online updates. If there's a topic or a speaker or anything else you would like us to cover, drop me an email to tribunalreporter at gmail.com. I'm Jared Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Take care and stay safe.